Greetings, everyone. Every one of us experience episodes in our life when our faith is tested, when things happen to us or our loved ones that make us feel a little more at odds, life is a little bit more difficult. We may lose a job, and that's probably happened to most all of us, or we lose our health. It's not as good as it once was. We may lose even a husband or a wife or other loved one, another family member, and we may begin to wonder, why me? Other times we may ask God for something we truly desire, something we truly want, such as possibly a marriage, if we're single, if that is the case, maybe an ideal job. We look forward to having a sense of fulfillment. We've been longing for an ideal job. Or maybe we desire a miraculous healing in our life, and yet it appears that God doesn't respond, at least at the moment he doesn't respond. So how do we handle such disappointments? Do we give up, for example? Do we assume God isn't listening? Do we allow doubts to creep into our mind, even growing possibly a little bit bitter towards our God? There are so many examples that we can recite of miraculous interventions of God, even in recent years, that have occurred to God's people. Some have been dramatically healed, and we could give examples even in the last couple of years, dramatic healings of cancer, and others have had, clearly, divine intervention from real danger and accidents. Some have had deliverance from financial burdens, financial situations in their life. Well, we have all experienced times in our life as it is when God doesn't dramatically intervene in our behalf in the way that we would like him to, of course. Again, how do we handle such disappointments that happen to us? You know, over the years, I've seen many people ultimately doubt God in time, doubt God, and even fall away because of their doubts. On the other hand, we've seen some very difficult situations, individuals growing stronger in faith year by year, even though they come through difficult situations. So today I'd like to look at the subject of faith in a little different perspective. Let's see what faith is, and let's see what faith is not. And then let's look at ways that we can build godly, living faith in our life. So the title of the sermon is Facets of Living Faith. Some have assumed that faith is the power of positive thinking. You ask God for something that you want in life, and as long as doubt never creeps into your mind, you'll have it. You get whatever you ask for. Is that correct? Is that God's intention in our life? Well, let's look at a few scriptures on the subject, and let's turn initially to James chapter 4 and verse 3. James 4 and verse 3. It says, You ask and do not receive... Because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. goes on to say, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It says here, it is possible to ask God and not receive, even though positive thinking may be part of the process for us. We think positively, we ask of God, we expect it, and we do not receive. So clearly, God's will in our life is pretty crucial and whatever we ask for, we're looking for God's will. Seems obvious, but sometimes we may lose sight of it. We may forget what God is up to in our life. And we know even Jesus Christ himself, about to be executed at a point in time, recognized that God's will was more significant than his own human life. Luke chapter 22, 
gives an insight to that. Luke chapter 22, as he faced his death, in the end he wanted God's will, even though he would prefer that this cup of trembling pass from him. Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, saying, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So we might ask, what is the will of God? What is the will of God in our life? Can we ask in confidence? Can we ask God in confidence for his will? Of course, we know the general outline or purpose of God is found in John chapter 6. Let's see the foundation of God's will in our life that determines every aspect of our life long term. John 6 and verse 39, where we will read, John 6, verse 39, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing but should rise or raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So this is the foundation of God's will, his purpose, all those God has called and chosen and received God's Spirit, that they would all succeed and ultimately become a part of the very family of God. This is the foundation of God's will for all aspects of our life. So above all else, God wants us to succeed in our training, in our preparation for his family, for the kingdom of God. So real godly faith is the assurance, it is the confidence that God knows what he's doing, that he knows what he's doing in our life, even though we don't always know what we're doing. Whatever we ask for, God will do what is best for us. And that's foundational, that's fundamental. Whatever we ask for, God will do what is best for us. The ultimate faith, then, is knowing that God will work it out. God will work it out in our life for our ultimate benefit so that we will succeed and become part of the very family of God, eternal life as a literal member of God's family. And that's God's purpose, and that's God's primary focus he will work it out in our life, and sometimes it may not exactly be immediately the way we think it could be or should be. But we read in Romans 8:28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, to those who are called and later chosen according to his purpose. It's all going to work out in the end. If we hang in there, God is preparing us, God is training us, God wants us to develop the capacity to make decisions like God himself, so that God in the end can say, now I know, I can trust him, I can trust her. So if we ask something of God and the answer is a clear no, it just doesn't happen, and whatever we ask for, if that's the case, God is looking out for our interests. And notice God's answer to Paul, for example, concerning the apparent request for healing in his life. Very powerful servant of God. Notice God's response to Paul. Second Corinthians chapter 12 you see, Paul had a thorn in the flesh, as we know. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, a very legitimate request here. Apparently, Paul wanted to be a more effective teacher and a more effective servant of God. In verse 7, we read, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, by the revelations that Paul had received from apparently Jesus Christ himself. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, 
in his physical flesh, in his flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure, so that in the end, Paul was kept humble. He was an unusual individual. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was, he had great potential in that society. Verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. It wasn't just once or passing. He pleaded with God three times. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, where my strength is made perfect in weakness, in Paul's weakness. Therefore, most gladly, Paul said, I will rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul had received a totally unique calling as the apostle when going out to the Gentiles, uh, unique training, unique training by Jesus Christ himself. And God apparently wanted to keep him humble, wanted to keep him focused, not highly elevated or proud of his abilities, and Paul not being elevated in his own mind. God's response to Paul, apparently, lack of healing, was totally for Paul's own good, to benefit Paul, to better prepare him for the family of God, to humble him so that he can be a better servant in this life and particularly in the life to come. And we know that God is a perfect parent. We, look, we think about child rearing, and we look to the pattern of our God, and he knows what's best for us, and he always responds in the way that's best for us. It's for our own good. Automatically, that's his intention, that's his purpose. It's for our own good. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, our three-year-old granddaughter at the time was taken to a 99-cent store by her mother, and she told her mother that she would like something, and her mother told her that she could pick out one thing, you know, one thing at the 99-cent store. And after looking quite a long time and taking her time, little Tressie determined that she needed three things, not one, but she needed three things. And she began to fuss a little bit and uh, to cry a little bit. You know, needless to say, her mother didn't give her, she didn't buy her three things. She got one, you know, just exactly as she had said. And also she got, as it turned out, a few swats at home as, as well later on. So the question was, was her mother acting in her best interest? Was she really denying her request for three things, three toys or whatever, as opposed to one? Of course she was acting in her best interest. You know, allowing a child to get everything she wants, whatever it is, is the quickest way to ruin the foundation of a child's character. No self-control and reality, just simply receiving and receiving and receiving whatever one would, might want. So real faith is the profound conviction that God wants what's best for us and he's going to do what is best for us no matter what as he rewards us, for example, and rewards those who diligently seek him. And as we seek him, he does what's best for us. You know, that's his purpose as the perfect parent. Hebrews chapter 11, for example. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, familiar scripture. And we read in verse 6, But without faith, without confidence, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, must believe that he is, that he exists. But yet, you know, that's only the beginning. 
80% of the American population believe in the existence of some deity, some god, but that's the foundation, that's the starting point, but much more advanced than that. And, number two, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And one must have the conviction, one must have the assurance, the confidence that God will bless us and reward us in ways that's best for us if we aggressively if we diligently seek him. He's going to do what's best for us, and we must have that confidence. And what is best for us, of course, in the end, is that we're prepared for the very family of God. So how does God reward us again? And in conclusion of that scripture, he rewards us with what's best for us from his perspective as a perfect parent should, as a perfect parent would. And it doesn't matter if we, so to speak, stomp our feet or get angry, or get depressed, or whatever, or maybe even a little bit bitter towards our God, our spiritual parent, God is always going to respond in a way that's best for us. Because He knows us better than we know ourselves, and He's concerned for us. He wants us to succeed. If we've received His Spirit, He wants us to succeed. He intends for us to succeed. Well, how about the issue of healing, for example? You know, sometimes we've seen God heals instantly, and that's exciting when it happens. And sometimes it's over a period of time. Sometimes it's yet future. Sometimes we wait. But, you know, the most dramatic healings imaginable for all of us is yet future at our resurrection. And we know that's certainly true. We'll exchange an imperfect body for perfect health, full of energy and power, never tired, you know, never weak. A very powerful body, never sick, without physical limitations, without being chained by the laws of physics, without physical limitations. There have been many elderly who have been healed dramatically over the years of some problem, some sickness. But you know, in the end, even though God may heal them dramatically, they still have the same tired old body. Maybe it's 75 or 80 years old. You know, they still have the same... Maybe they've been healed of a lung problem and they still have knees that are old. You know, they're not in perfect condition. They've aged. Total healing, in the true sense, is yet future. It's yet future at Christ's return when we're changed or resurrected, when Jesus Christ restores all things. And we will be restored then to health, to a glorified state, to total health in every way. No, no parts that don't function perfectly. You know, that is the true, ultimate healing at the beginning of the kingdom of God. Another example, for those potentially who are single and would really love to have someone to spend the rest of their life with, and that fits with most singles. You know, if one has approached God on this and approached God consistently, and if you are still not married, for example, even if it has been for a few years, are you still convinced that God knows what he's doing? Are you still convinced that he is responding in the way that's best for you? Do you have that confidence in the great God and in the perfect parent? Do you trust the great God? Do you believe he is there for you? Or do you have little doubts that creep in? Maybe God, for example, is preparing someone else for you. Someone that you don't even know at this moment in time. Maybe they're not yet converted. I mean, that's possible. God's not short of resources with the ability of calling new individuals and converting new individuals. Maybe, just maybe, you need to make some changes in your life. 
you know, before which maybe you wouldn't be a good mate. Maybe God knows you better than you do. And do you have the confidence in your God to actually ask him to choose the right converted husband or wife for you, to put it into God's hands and ask him to fulfill it in your life if and when that is his will, when you are prepared? And if you are one of the few who never marry, and there are some, do you still have the confidence and the trust to believe that God knows what he's doing in your life? That he's there for you, he's looking out for you, he's going to do what's best in your life. You know, our relationships in the kingdom of God, in the family of God, uh, relationships with other spirit beings, with other sons of God, our relationship with Jesus Christ and even God the Father in time, you might say will be light years ahead of anything that we've ever experienced in this life. You know, even marriage. Those relationships on another level as spirit beings will be beyond what we can grasp in this day and age. You know, the same thing could be said about any area of our life that we approach God on, whether it's our job, our finances. doesn't matter. Whatever the question is, whether the answer is no or yes or wait, whatever God's answer is at the moment, real living faith, real confidence in the great God is having the confidence to trust God. It's having the confidence to know He knows what he's doing, and he wants what's best for us. He is the perfect parent. So the really big question is, do you trust God? Do you trust him with your life? God said that he will reward you if you diligently, if you aggressively seek him. He guarantees, he promises that he will benefit you, that he will reward you. And there are many times that God may bless or reward you, for example, with the path that builds more character rather than with the path that builds more finances, more money, or instant health. God may bless you with greater character. So now that we've set the stage, so to speak, let's look at some of the keys that will increase our faith in our God, keys that will increase our confidence in the great God and God seeing us through. Number one, we're listing about six points here. Number one, we need to realize that developing this kind of faith and total trust in our God, total trust in our God, is a necessary part of our training. And it's not optional. It's not a luxury. for simply the spiritual super achievers. God expects and wants it for all of us. Total trust in our God is part of God's focus and ultimate training in our life. If God is going to trust us with responsibility over thousands of potential members of his family at the beginning of the millennium and later the white throne judgment, for example, an unimaginable power as a spirit being, as God expands his family throughout in time, throughout the galaxies, throughout the universe as well, God needs to know that we have total confidence in his judgment. We know he always does what's best for us. And, of course, Lucifer had tremendous authority and power, but in the end, he didn't trust God's judgment. He didn't simply believe that God would work it out for Lucifer in the way that was best for him. Notice Hebrews chapter 11. Let's turn to Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. And we read again, Without faith it is impossible... To please him, to please God, without supreme confidence in our God. 
and the reality of our God, it is impossible for God to have confidence in us. If we, if we have doubt in even a basic thing like the reality and existence of a very loving, personal God, how can he have confidence in us? Let's move back to verse 1 in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the substance. Of course, our margin adds confidence. It is the confidence, the even rock-solid confidence. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so what are the things not seen? Well, the things not seen that we can have rock-solid confidence in, hopefully, is God. As we saw in verse 6, the reality of God, the proof of his existence, even in our life. Of course, the ultimate kingdom of God. You know, one way or another, God's kingdom is going to be established, hopefully with us. It could be with us or without us, but hopefully with us. And we can also have rock-solid confidence that God knows what he's doing, and he's on track, he knows what he's doing, and God will always do what's best for us. He's planning for us. He wants to see us succeed. Verse 6 again. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him diligently seek him, you know, God rewards us. He blesses us with what is best for us in our training. And we must believe that and have confidence in that and trust God in that in our life. You know, that's what God wants most in our life. We believe in our God. He will intervene personally and he'll do what's best for us as he guides us. So trusting God may be literally against our human nature against Satan's nature, acquired Satan's nature. And fully trusting God is admitting that we're not in full control of our lives, that so often things are beyond our control or we are out of control or we don't have all the facts. Disasters strike, of course. Tragedies may happen. They can happen. Life can be hard at times and sometimes beyond our immediate understanding. We just don't know how to look at it, how it all comes together. But God wants us to know that we can trust him through thick and thin, through it all. And God wants our complete trust and confidence in his reality. And the fact that he will reward us, he will bless us. He'll intervene with the way that's best for us. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And we will find a scripture that tells us... In verse 5, in verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. That's God's purpose. That's God's promise. That's God's intention, that if we have that confidence in God, if we trust in our God with all our understanding, He will direct our paths. He will direct us in the way that's best for us. It's going to see us succeed. You know, that kind of trust pays off. It is a promise of God. It is rock solid. We can have confidence. God wants us to trust him even when we don't fully understand situations, circumstances in our life. Psalm chapter 9. Turn to Psalm chapter 9. In verse 9, Psalm 9 and verse 9, we read, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. In verse 10, a refuge, continuing in 9, a refuge in times of trouble, 
in our life. Verse 10, And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You know, what a tremendous peace of mind we can have in our God, trusting in our God. God will not forsake those who seek Him, who trust Him, who perceives His Spirit. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know, we can have that confidence if we follow our God. Obviously, we can leave our God. But God Himself never intends to leave us or forsake us. So that's point number one in developing the kind of faith we need. We must have total trust in our God coming to trust Him with our life, that He knows what He's doing, that He's on track, even though at times we're not on track, and He'll see us through if we see Him through. Point number two, when things aren't going right in your life, in the way that we'd like them to, in the way that we have them figured out, we think, or when God doesn't seem to intervene at the moment, not yet, we must be careful. Number two, we must be careful that we don't ever grow bitter, even just a little bit bitter, with our God, because things haven't worked out the way we might like them to. Not too many people would ever say, I'm really bitter at God. You know, not too many people are that bold. But sometimes, you know, there's the evidence of it in the mindset when it is a continuous negative mindset. You sometimes see that among others. Individuals who can never be encouraged... They always have a yeah, but approach and an attitude. When you try to encourage them, you try to focus them to the big picture, it's always yes, but. When others try to encourage or inspire them, invariably, they have a comeback. They have a counter. They have the other side of the fence. They often put on a spiritual front, but underneath it all, they are down on life. They're not fully accepting of what God is doing in their life. And in some ways, they are disappointed in their God, possibly secretly, just a little bit bitter. Now, look at the classic example of this. You can uh, find this in Job. Classic example in Job. A man who was quite righteous in his obedience to his God. He grew bitter when his life took a turn for the worse. Job chapter 9 and verse 14. Job showed his bitterness in time. Job 9 and verse 14. Now then, can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would, be, I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. And the bitterness kind of creeps in here. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiply my wounds without cause. And he will not allow me to catch my breath. But fills me with bitterness, fills me with bitterness, Job said. If it is a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? So Job thought he was righteous. And according to God, he was righteous. But Job failed to see that God, training him for eternity, wants to make sure that Job trusted him. He wants to make sure that we trust him through thick and thin High points of our life and low points of our life, even through, for some, the valley of the shadow of death. Job chapter 10 and verse 1. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. So he admitted he was bitter. And I will say to God, do not condemn me. 
show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and shine on the counsel of the wicked? Would you say Job was a little bit bitter here? I think Job clearly admitted it. He showed the evidence of it. But, you know, in the end, God showed Job. God challenged Job. God showed himself directly to Job. And all of a sudden, Job regained his focus. He regained his perspective and realized how insignificant his purpose was compared to the great creator God of the universe. He got perspective. Job chapter 42. We see Job's mindset once again. A little different frame of reference. Job chapter 42 and beginning in verse 1. 42, 1. And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And you ask, you ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you, and you shall answer me. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job finally got a perspective of God, how great God's purpose is, how small and insignificant he was. And when things are not going exactly in our life the way we want them to, uh, they're not going quite according to our own schedule, you know, we have to avoid this kind of bitterness at all costs towards our God. Hopefully we take stock and realize when those things happen, we either grow closer to God, we begin to seek God aggressively, Ask God, where do I need to change? We grow closer to God, or the other fork of the road is to grow bitter. In other words, we either grow better in the process, or we grow bitter. So we must, at all costs, we must, as God implies, be very careful that we don't grow bitter towards our God, as if some circumstance in our life right now is more important than the overall plan of God of preparing us for His family preparing us for the right character of the great God himself, being able to even to a degree think like God, that is the highest value in our life, according to God. Well, additionally, number three, let's move on to number three then. We need to retain the big picture if that's going to happen in our life. And we know that this life is really only a drop in the bucket in the stream of eternity as we look backwards and forwards. How long do we have in our brief training period? Before we were fully born into the family of God, is it 10 years or is it 15 years? Of course, how does that compare to the rest of eternity, to the rest of our existence as a member of the very family of God? Psalm chapter 103, Psalm 103, and verse 15, verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. You know, we, we grow through our, our adolescence and into young adulthood. Or the wind passes over it and it's gone. And the grass does wither in the summer when the sun's shining and there's lack of rain. And that's like our life. And its place remembers it no more. Verse 17. 
But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, on those who trust him, and his righteousness to children's children. It says man's days are like the grass. That is, in physical form, we run down, we wear out, and we die. But in the plan of God, of course, God has something greater for us. He's preparing us to heal us literally spiritually. So we develop the very mind of God so God can use us and trust us. Let's turn back to the New Testament, to James chapter 4, verse 14. Speaking of our brief time in life, James 4.14, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, and there's no way we can know what will happen even this evening, but also tomorrow and the next week and beyond. Verse 14, For what is your life? It is even a vapor, and I just like a vapor that passes. Try to grab a handful of fog and, it, and you can't get it. It's not lasting. It's like a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. It's gone. You know, James is saying physically our human life is exactly like that. It's like a little bit of a vapor. A brief few years on this planet. A time of training for an imaginable future. And literally this life is for our training. We're here to be trained for the very family of God. And someday, if we remain faithful, we will graduate at Christ's return and we'll move on to our real career in the very family of God that we're being trained for. Well, we can think of this brief few years that we have that's passing as simply our spiritual childhood. You know, it is the time of our training. Our, our basic learning is being accomplished, preparation for real life in a few short years. And, of course, a child has to learn to crawl before they can walk. They can't walk before they can crawl generally. They must learn to walk before they can run. It's one step at a time. And sometimes, of course, they fall down, they tumble, you know, bang their head, and it hurts, of course. But a loving parent, hopefully, always helps the child up, sets the child back on his feet or her feet. You know, a loving parent, as our God does with us. So in our spiritual childhood, when things aren't going exactly the way we would like, whatever our circumstances are, we need to stop and think, you know, does God really know what he's doing after all in our life? Can we trust him? Is he the perfect parent or is he not? Is he trying to teach me lessons that I need to learn here and now that I really need to learn for my own good, for my own lasting benefit? Is my spiritual well-being much more important to God than my physical well-being at the moment? And, of course, the answer is yes. God has the big picture, the long run. He wants us to see us succeed spiritually forever and ever. So we need to stop occasionally and ask ourselves, are we learning anything in the process, or are we just simply enduring? It's good to endure, but God wants us to learn in the process as well. God wants us to endure to the end, but hopefully our enduring enables us to learn as we go, to develop more of the mind of Christ, develop more of the mind of God, to be th able to think a little more closely like God would think, to make those kinds of decisions, even at the beginning of the millennium, so God can trust us. So hopefully, as we keep the focus of the big picture, if we choose to, we need also, and that's number four, we need also to exercise a little bit of patience with our God now and then, a little bit of patience. James chapter 1, James chapter 1 and verse 2, James says, My brethren, 
Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Recognize what God is doing in your life. Recognize what God is offering you, what he's training you for. You're being purified. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You know, we, we need a little patience with our God. We need to have that kind of faith and confidence in God that we can be patient and we can wait for time. Verse 4, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And, of course, it's speaking spiritually here, that we can be perfect, lacking nothing, that we can be trusting God and having that rock-solid confidence that God exists, that He is a rewarder of those who aggressively or diligently seek Him, and that includes this life and, of course, the life to come. Some may wonder, well, now, why in the world would God want us to develop patience? I mean, you know, patience is for human beings. You know, I hear a lot of people say, and I guess we all do, you know, patience is not something I have a lot of. And people will freely admit that. You know, I can't stand to wait. I want what I want now. Well, again, if it seems that patience is contrary, is contrary to human nature, you know, indeed it is. It is contrary to human nature and nature acquired from Satan. You know, it's Satan's nature. You know, he was the one that said, I'll do it my way, not God's way. You know, I'll have confidence in what I think is the right way. I will ascend to the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. He basically said, I'm going to do it my way. I've got another way. I'm not going to trust the one who created me. I'll do it my way. I can't wait. And apparently, Lucifer was in a big hurry to do it his way. Well, why do we have to develop patience as human beings to function as a God being? You know, surely God himself doesn't need patience. Surely he doesn't have to rely on patience. He can do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. Why does he need patience? Well, of course, as a matter of fact, patience is part of the very character of God himself. You know, it is a godly character trait, his nature. Romans 15, Romans chapter 15 and verse 5 says exactly that. 15:5. now may the God of patience, and he's our God, and he is patient with us, and we should be patient with him. May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. You know, some might say, well, oh, no, you know, patience. I was hoping that as a God being, I wouldn't have to be patient. I'd never have to exercise any patience. I could just do what's needed. Do you think that God had to exercise a little bit of patience from the creation of the universe, whenever that was, millions or billions of years ago, to the first resurrection ahead of us to expand his family? Did he have to exhibit a little bit of patience in seeing his plan through? Do you think that God has to exercise a little patience in our lives? Do you think that God had to exercise a little bit of patience with Israel at times? Well, obviously he did. And of course, the same is true for us. God exercises patience with us. And he works with us. He doesn't give up on us. And the same is true in our life. We should exercise patience in our God and not give up on his purpose in our life. Do you think we'll have to exercise a little bit of patience with humanity at the beginning of the millennium when Jesus Christ begins to establish his kingdom, when the world is in armed camp for a while and even rebellious, maybe even intent in destroying Jesus Christ as we see, this powerful being in Jerusalem? 
and all those with him, even including us, as we're with him at that time, we develop patience in this life by demonstrating to our God that we really do trust him. We're confident of his reality, of the given that he rewards those who aggressively seek him, in spite of the fact on occasion that God has not yet intervened for us in the way that we want him to. We still have that rock-solid confidence that God knows what he's doing. I know an older lady in her early 80s who's slowly losing her eyesight, for example. And like all of us, her eyesight is pretty precious to her. As far as to read, being able to even read the Scripture, she cherishes her eyesight. And she has been anointed, and she has been anointed more than once. But God, at this point in time, has not chosen to heal her at this point in time. You know, losing your eyesight wouldn't be a pleasant thing in this life. We're so dependent on our eyesight. But this faithful older lady, in her example, shows an increasing faith and confidence in her God as she patiently waits on God, if not now, in the coming resurrection. Let's turn back to Hebrews 6 again. Hebrews 6 and verse 11. Chapter 11, and verse 11, rather, Hebrews 6, and verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. So, we need to be diligent with that same hope that God is working behind the scenes in our life. He's going to work it out to the very end, the end of our life. Verse 12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. <clears throat> so exercising patience with our God demonstrates that quiet confidence that God knows what he's doing and he's on track. Sometimes we're a little off track, but he's on track. He's there. He's working with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. And when we have this patience, when we have that kind of confidence, that kind of assurance, rock-solid confidence, we don't panic at times when things aren't going right. We don't panic. We just know that somehow God is working in our life, and he'll see us through, and he'll work it out. In the end, he's preparing us for his family. And there are times when we have to step out in faith, simply willing to obey God no matter what the price, no matter what the costs. Maybe tithing when supposedly we think we can't afford to tithe. Or keeping the Sabbath and holy days. Maybe an employer says no. Or observing the entire Feast of Tabernacles when it makes it very difficult in college, for example, or on the job. And we have that confidence that God will see us through. He's working in our life. Let's turn over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 and verse 18. James 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works, by my effort. You believe there is one God, you do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead so we have to do far more in our life than believe in, in the existence of God. You know, most Americans at least believe in the existence of some deity, but we need to believe 
and have confidence that God will bless us. God blesses those, rewards those who diligently, aggressively seek Him. We need to work and we need to act like God is fully in control of our life. You know, we may not be fully in control of our life, but we are communicating with the being who is, who has that capacity, has that power to work behind the scenes if we trust Him, work through circumstances that, that stress us for a time. We may lack patience at a time, but we know our God is there. That quiet patience in our God will see us through. We have that confidence. And it leads us to a fifth key then, and that is if we have real patience waiting on our God, knowing that He knows what He's doing, He's doing what's right for us, in the end we'll have contentment in our life. And we can have contentment when things aren't perfect, when things aren't going exactly our way. You know, our God is with us, even if we're short of money or perfect health or even for some companionship. Our God is there with us. We can be content. We can know what God is doing in our life. We can see the big picture. Contentment comes when we become inwardly satisfied that our life is in God's hands. We're comfortable with that thought. We trust our God in that thought. Our life is in His hands. And the outcome of our life will be the kingdom of God. And that's what we know. That's what we believe. That's what we count on. The end of our life is the family of God. It's birth into the family of God. It is graduation into our real careers as sons of God. God promises us that He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never leave us or forsake us, His children who have received His Spirit. So we have every reason to be content. If we grasp that, if we believe it, we can be content. We see the future. We may not be we may not be enjoying every circumstance in our life that is around us currently, immediately happening in our life, but we can be okay with it. We know there's coming a better time. We know there's coming birth into the family of God. We know it's all working out of purpose. And we can be content. Hebrews chapter 13. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. And beginning in verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness, without desiring you know, possessions that the world has in abundance, and be content with such things as you have, content for now, knowing that God is going to bless you abundantly in his family, even monetarily, as we inherit this planet and later the universe. Be content with such things as you have. In other words, for now, because you know there is a future time, there is a payoff, so to speak. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man can do to me. So we're confident. That's a very bold statement, of course. But Paul himself didn't live in some ivory tower. You know, it was his life. It was the way of life that he lived. You know, Paul had tremendous obstacles in his, in his life, from being shipwrecked to being to being stoned at one point in time to being adrift in the ocean, wandering if he was going to survive maybe through the, not, the night. One who was impoverished, imprisoned, you know, one who had that confidence. Philippians chapter 4, and this is the mind of Paul. Through it all, through all those traumas, Philippians 4, he was content, he said. Philippians 4 and verse 11, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, 
to be content. And this is spoken of, of Paul, you know, the jailbird. Whatever state I am to be content, I, I know the outcome. I'm okay with it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm being trained. Verse 12, I know how to be abased, and he was, and I know how to abound, and he was provided for. And everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, and he experienced both, both to abound and to suffer need, to suffer need. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you know, incredible as it is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, contentment doesn't mean, of course, that we become a lethargic, that we just go totally with the flow, that we don't try to improve our life. That's not the kind of contentment that God is looking for. Contentment means that we shed any bitterness or impatience with our God. We really do have the big picture in mind, and we keep back any setbacks or disappointments in perspective. We analyze them in perspective. We don't really let them get us down. We know the outcome of our life. We may not be having fun at this moment in time, but we're okay. We're being tested. We're being tried. It's kind of like an educational process, kind of like being in college. Or maybe four years, for example. One is short of money, short of sleep, takes tests. Hopefully most of them pass, but, you know, not always with abundance. And that's our life. We're being trained. And we take tests. Hopefully we pass most of them. And we are stressed at times. But we know in the end... There's an end, that is, we graduate and we move on to our real career and family of God. So this life period is only training. Paul was able to have this genuine mindset, not because he was living a millennial life, but because he was so focused, he was so focused on the breathtaking future that he saw that was revealed to him, man's potential, the incredible human potential. Let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And if we're trusting our God, and if we are content, because we know where we're headed, we know what God is doing for us, we, may, we know we may be a little bit impoverished in various ways now, but God is going to reward us. He's going to bless us, particularly in the family of God. And if we are content with our God, it is great gain. It's great peace of mind. It's great stability. It takes away most of the fears in our life, the frustrations. And Paul says, in summary, for we brought nothing into this world. So he's saying, in effect, remember our origins. Remember... You know, we're being trained. We're, remember what we're being trained for. And it is certain we can carry nothing out of this world. And we're not going to take any assets with us out of this world. It doesn't matter how much equity we have in a home. We're not going to take it with us. We're only going to take our character with us. You know, the mind of God, to the extent we develop the mind of God, that is the only thing we can take with us into the family of God, into the kingdom of God. You know, we can't take our assets with us. For our debts, thankfully, you know, it is our character. And it's like putting money in the bank in a spiritual sense. It goes on to say, it goes on to say in this life, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And Paul is meaning for now, not, not forever, 
But for now, we are content. We know we're being trained. We're, we're being trained to be first fruits in the family of God. And we're content. We know that God's going to work it out. We know that God's training us to be a part of the better resurrection. You know, we're excited about it. All the rest of the family of God will have a different training. We're, we're trained in a way almost like special forces. God only needs a few. Many are called. Few are chosen. You know, it's a rigorous training. But God only needs a few firstborn in his family, firstfruits in his family. He doesn't need the entire family to be firstborn. God only needs a few, apparently, who will teach and train and maybe manage the rest of the family of God through the millennium. The millions, if not few billions through the millennium, in the tens of billions in the second resurrection. And God has called us to be highly trained, unique training, you know, as special forces operating behind enemy lines in Satan's world. You know, unique training. And God says it is a blessing, it is a privilege. And we must be content in this life knowing what we're being trained for. We're being trained for a unique position in the very family of God. So we become content, and as we do, with our God, with God working in our life, with having at times things that we don't have, that we'd like to have, we're content with our training. We're God's family. We develop a true thankfulness towards our great God. We're we're grateful for what He's doing, in spite of whatever limitations that we have at the moment. Because we all have things that we lack. This is not the millennium. This is Satan's world, and yet we recognize our training, and we are content. Whatever our immediate circumstances are, whether it's our health or our finances or this, that, or the other thing, we keep the big picture content with the fact and full of appreciation of our God, content with the fact that God is calling us and preparing us to be first fruits in his family. What a tremendous privilege it is to be called in this age, in this world. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14. Ephesians 5 and verse 14. Therefore he says, Awake, awake you who sleep. If we're a little bit sleepy in our spiritual life, arise from the dead. In other words, don't be lukewarm. Awake up to the potential. And Christ will give you light, will give you understanding if we seek it. And see that then that you walk circumspectly as not as fools, but in wise. That we walk carefully, knowing our calling and our training, redeeming the time, making it count, because the days are evil. We know that. And so we're told that we must redeem the time. We must take our training seriously and pass the tests and eventually graduate. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what, what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, with the mind of God, being fully trained, speaking to one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always. For all things, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks always for all things. And this was spoken of, of course, by the Apostle Paul, the one who was a jailbird. He said, give thanks. 
Be aware of your training. Be aware of your calling. You know, that's the kind of mindset, of course, that will see us through. It's contentment. We don't panic. We don't panic when something happens in our life that's not according to our liking. We may not, we don't have to like every circumstance in our life, but we have confidence. We have contentment in our God. He knows what He's doing. He's there for us. And someday we will graduate. We will move on to our real careers. Well, we know the outcome then of our life and where we're headed. And we're confident and we're content. And finally, we have one final key in developing and sustaining true godly faith, the kind of confidence that God wants. Number six, we never give up. And this is true in a couple of ways, but we never give up. It's spiritual stubbornness in the right way. We intend to be part of the family of God one way or another with God's help. Whatever the price, we're not going to give up. We've made up our mind. In that sense, we're going to be stubborn in a right way. So true godly faith is a gift of God. And we can read about that in Ephesians 2.8 and 1 Corinthians 11.9. True godly faith, it is a gift of God. You know, it comes from God. It's actually more of the faith of Jesus Christ that we can have, the same faith that he trusted the Father, even to the point of his, the end of his life. He trusted God to resurrect him. It also comes as a fruit of the Spirit, as a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. And it's principally through Christ living his life in us, as I mentioned, Galatians 2.20. So since it is a fruit of the Spirit, it's part of the outcome of the way of life, of God's Spirit, of God's mindset, and it is a gift of God. It's both. It's not one, it's both. We can always struggle for and reach for and seek for more faith. We can ask for it, even as a gift. And hopefully it's frequently part of our prayer, asking for more of the living faith of Jesus Christ. And we know he just doesn't dump it on us. He works in our life. There are situations and circumstances that we, we're not sure how we're going to get through it. But we step out in faith. We trust our God. And in turn, God builds that kind of confidence because we see his intervention. We even see, at times, miracles in our life. That builds the reality of our God. So besides asking for more faith, as I mentioned initially here, we never give up. We're determined in asking for God's intervention and His will in our life. His intervention in all things and His will in our life. You know, Jesus Christ gave a parable of the unjust judge. Luke chapter 18. And we're told through this to never give up in seeking our God and His will in our life for our good spiritually. Luke 18, and verse 1, And then He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And this is the point of the parable, that we will not give up, so to speak. We're stubborn. We continually approach God, not to force our will on God, but to ask God's intervention and guidance and gentle correction in our life. Hopefully, we do ask God to gently correct us because we want a better life, and that's the outcome of any correction that comes. It is a better life in the present and in the future, of course, but in the present, not just primarily financially, but spiritually. Stronger marriages, stronger families, stronger relationships within the church among God's people. 
And any time God corrects us, it's for our own good and we will benefit. So Jesus Christ gave this parable to help us to realize that we should never lose heart. We should trust our great God. Verse 8. He says, And I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, that when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Well, he's asking that question. When Jesus Christ returns, when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age, will he see that kind of confidence and trust in his people who continually go to God asking for his will in their life, knowing the reality of our God in complete confidence. And Jesus Christ says at the very end of the age, that last era, will he find it? And of course, the answer is yes, he will. Those who choose, those who choose to seek aggressively their God, to be fully Philadelphian in spirit, to be humble, to be submissible, to be willing to be corrected by God and even others, so Jesus Christ was saying, and I didn't, we didn't read this whole parable, but he was saying that we should never give up in seeking God's will and intervention in our life. You know, we don't force God to do our will, but we seek God's will. We seek his way. We give him, you know, questions. We ask him to show us the way, to correct us gently. We ask him to see us through, and he will. So Jesus Christ is saying, never give up. I'm there with you. I'm for you. I'm training you. I'll see you through. And you will graduate if we stay faithful. But we continue to ask God for those things we think that would be good for us. And that's legitimate. We think that would be good for us, especially spiritually. It's going to benefit our training and our preparation. That God will show us his will. Whatever our question is, we ask for God's will. We don't make up our mind and, and, and attempt to force God to do our will. You know, occasionally we fast. Isaiah 58, we fast. Not the wrong way, but the right way. And we're serious. We go to our God and we spell out maybe a question in our life. I don't know if I should go to the left hand or to the right hand. And we seek God and we tell him we want his will, not just our will. We really don't care the answer, what the answer is, but we, we want him to show us. We want him to show us his will because we know it's for our good and we want what's good for us automatically. Of course we do. Well, so we continue to ask God then to show us what's best for us spiritually in particular, our ultimate training, and God will show us his will. God will open doors and God will close doors. Remember, God always will do what's best for us, and that is his will. So in conclusion... If we begin to totally trust the great God of the universe, have that confidence in Him and the reality of God and the fact that He will bless us as we aggressively seek Him, if we avoid growing bitter at all costs when God doesn't respond immediately, when things don't go exactly the way we want them to, if we keep the big picture squarely before our eyes, we recognize that this is purely training and we're being prepared for Tremendous career in the family of God. If we exercise a little patience with God, if we extend a little patience with our God as He extends patience to us, if we develop contentment in our life, no matter what our circumstances are, we're content because we know the outcome, we know where we're headed, we intend to succeed with God's help, and if we never give up, even 
spiritually stubborn in a right way, seeking more of the living faith of Jesus Christ. That same kind of faith, that rock-solid confidence where he trusted God even to the end of his life. In never giving up, if we have that kind of confidence, seeking God's will in our life because we know it's best for us. God is there for us. He loves us. And that profound faith and trust and confidence in our God will carry us through this life and into the kingdom of God. God will be there for us. He will see us through. We will not just endure to the end. We will prosper now and forever. 